Welcome to the Success in Medicine podcast. I'm Dr. Samir Desai, and I'm here with my partner, Dr. Rajani Kata. In this episode, we are going to talk about matching into a competitive specialty or program. Rajani, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. You've served as a professor of dermatology at the Baylor College of Medicine for over 17 years, and I know that you've mentored many medical students, and you continue to work on publications and projects with multiple medical students. What advice do you have for applicants who are looking to match into a competitive field or program? Oh, this is such an important question for so many students, because in order to match successfully, especially if you're thinking about a competitive program, you need to think about a strategy and you need to implement that strategy as early as possible. Uh, And this is, of course, one of the reasons you and I were inspired to write our book, The Successful Match, Rules to Succeed in the Residency Match. And it ended up being over 600 pages because we had a lot to say on the subject. We did have a lot to say. And so as you're talking to students, what are some common pieces of advice that they've heard? Well, I want to start with some of the biggest misconceptions about matching into a competitive program. So I remember back when I was working on writing the book, I was talking to one of my friends about the book. And I explained that one of the reasons that I was really inspired to write this book was that I had a number of Baylor medical students with whom I had worked with over the years, and they would come to me and ask me for advice on how to match into dermatology. And I finally decided that I wanted to distill that advice into a book uh, because I could really expand upon it in a book and say all of the things that I just couldn't get to in the course of a 30-minute meeting. I also wanted to be able to say things to students that were sometimes hard to hear and that were sometimes uncomfortable to say face-to-face, but that were a little easier for me to say in the form of a book. So I explained all of this to my friend about why I was writing this book and what inspired me. And she turned to me and she said, really, that's the book you want to write? You know, get good grades and get great test scores. That's it. That's your book. Um, And I remember thinking, wow. Uh, And she was kind of joking, but kind of not. But I thought it was really interesting because that is such a common misconception. Absolutely. That is truly a common misconception. And I know because I talk about it all the time with my students as well. Why is it a misconception? Well, I'll start with the fact that, yes, absolutely. The foundation of applying to a competitive program is great grades and great test scores. But that is definitely not the whole picture. I've spoken to applicants who have a USMLE score of 260 or above and they have research publications, they've spent time working with people in the field, and yet they've only received two interview invitations, and one of those was at their home program. Now, I've also spoken to students with those same great USMLE scores and good grades, but without any research, who have received over 20 interview invitations. And then with students who have USMLE scores of less than 220 who have successfully matched into dermatology. So it's clear that there's a lot more to it than just grades and scores. So great grades and scores certainly help, but they don't guarantee that successful match. And certainly if you don't have those grades and scores, you can still successfully match if you implement certain strategies. 
I'm so glad that you brought up strategies. So let's talk about that a bit more. I think these are important strategies for any applicant, but probably more so for those who might be at a disadvantage. Can you give us some examples of success stories from applicants who are facing challenges? Oh, absolutely. I know you and I both have worked with multiple applicants. Um, And as one example, applicants who have lower USMLE scores who have matched into competitive fields such as dermatology or otolaryngology. Uh, And certainly we've, uh, I know you have worked with many students who have had uh, maybe a step one or a step two failure who have gone to, on to successfully match into fields such as internal medicine or anesthesiology. I um, have also spoken with multiple international medical graduates who have successfully matched into very competitive fields such as radiation oncology, dermatology, otolaryngology, Uh, And I know you've worked with and spoken to multiple osteopathic students who have successfully matched into historically allopathic programs, such as academic orthopedic surgery programs. So we've brought to your attention these strategies. I know our listeners are now wondering, what are these strategies? So let's expand on the strategies behind these success stories. And so how have these students matched successfully? Well, there are definitely a number of strategies, but when I think about how I explain this to my students, I really focus on three main ones. And these three strategies are centered on people and projects. So what do you mean by people and projects? Well, I think it's it's easy to get caught up in this idea of algorithms and all that, but Really, at the end of the day, it is an actual person who is looking over your application materials. So a computer may be screening based on, let's say, your test scores. But in many cases, there is a person, a decision maker, who can decide to get you past that screen. So you have to think about people at the heart of this entire process. And then you also have to think about projects. Because many times it's those research projects or those publications or the work that you've done in other areas, such as your advocacy work or volunteer work. Uh, It's those projects that can make people decide to take a closer look at your application. So tell me more about people and projects. What do you advise applicants who are applying to a competitive program overall? Well, first of all, I have to say that in this environment, it's very challenging. We know for applicants who are applying to competitive specialties or to competitive programs within less competitive specialties, that they are going to have to apply widely to a large number of programs. But I think it's really important for applicants to stop and think within that big list, what are the programs that you're really specifically targeting? It's important as a strategy to take a look at a few specific programs, you know, let's call these your target programs, and then think about and invest the effort to appeal to these programs. So let's say that you've identified two programs that you'd like to target, what do you do next? Well, as I mentioned, I recommend three main strategies. 
So let me talk about how past applicants have matched into competitive programs, even if they weren't necessarily as strong as other applicants. So the three main strategies I recommend, the first is a strong connection to the program. The second is a personal recommendation from a faculty advocate. And then the third strategy is a compelling eros and personal statement that really focuses on fit. So number one, develop that strong connection. And when I say to a program, I mean to a program's faculty members or program director. Number two, have a strong personal recommendation from a faculty advocate. And then number three, create compelling application materials that really emphasize your fit with this individual program? Well, what I'd like to do is dive deeper into these strategies. So let's go through, through those recommendations one by one. Tell me more about the importance of a strong connection to a program's faculty members. Well, I'll start out by saying that there's a reason why your home program historically has been your best chance for matching. It's because you have these direct interactions with faculty members and oftentimes the program director at your home program. You might have those direct interactions because you've rotated through the department and they've been able to observe your performance in the clinic. You might have also worked on research projects or maybe volunteered on one of the faculty members' initiatives. You might have gone up to them after a lecture and had a conversation. So they have been able to get to know you beyond just an applicant on paper. They've had a chance to see your work ethic, your interpersonal and communication skills, and your teamwork. And this information is really priceless for a residency program. In general, residency programs, you know, they have to think long and hard about who they're choosing because this is somebody they're going to spend, let's say, the next three or four years with. So if they have that strong knowledge of who you are, that means that they're not taking a chance on somebody that they just met for one day during an interview. So essentially, by developing that close working relationship, you've become a known commodity. And that's incredibly important to decision makers. But what if you are targeting a program that is not your home program? Ah, so that definitely presents a, a number of challenges. So certainly there's a reason that audition electives historically have been very important in competitive specialties. For example, in dermatology, historically many applicants have matched at programs that were either their home program or at which they had done a one month audition or away elective. So it's the same concept. Decision makers are more likely to choose a known commodity. But I have to say that even if you have not had a chance to do an audition elective, there are definitely other ways to create those direct connections with faculty at other programs. So let me give you four examples. And these four examples are all centered on your particular interest in a field. So number one, seek writing opportunities. Number two, work with organizations. Number three, express your intellectual curiosity and appreciation. And then number four, express your clinical interests. You ready for me to dive in deeper to those? Absolutely. I want to hear more. 
Yeah, I know it's a lot to take in, but um, but I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because you're you're absolutely correct that it's a lot easier if you're at your home program or if you're doing a one month audition elective. But if you don't have those opportunities, how are you going to become a known commodity? So I talk about, you know, centering on your particular interest in a field. So number one is seek writing opportunities. You can do case reports or review articles with faculty at other programs. So as an example, I've had students reach out to me via my website because they've read a number of my articles about diet and dermatology. That's one of my major research interests. And these students have reached out to me because they have an interest in that field as well. So I've actually worked with several students remotely on publications just based on that expressed interest. So you can reach out and take a chance. It it often doesn't work. It sometimes works. But you really don't know uh, unless you take a chance and reach out. And I have to say a lot of this really comes down to timing. So uh, you can never take any of these rejections personally. I have to say it really does come come down to timing a lot of times. But um, but let me move on to the second strategy, which is to work with organizations. So I've known a number of students who have become involved with national organizations that are centered on either a specialty or maybe centered on other initiatives in medicine. And some of the students have become um, have become leaders in that organization. So, for example, I've known students who have chaired the student committee in a certain organization. And when you are on a committee of a national organization, that affords you the chance to interact and get to know faculty who are also on those committees who are at other programs. So that's, you know, the second way that I talk about. The third way that I talk about is to express your intellectual curiosity and appreciation. So, uh, you know, let me give you an example. If you're writing a review paper on, let's say, the incidence of comorbidities in patients with psoriasis, you may come across a great paper that you end up citing in your own review article. Well, you can actually reach out directly to the author of that paper by just emailing them. Almost all journal articles have the author's contact information right there in the publication. And you can take that moment to just reach out and email the author and tell them how much you appreciated their work, especially since you're writing your own review article and you've just cited their work. So you don't need to write anything further, but just making that contact can sort of put you on the map, so to speak. So it might not lead to anything further, and that's fine. Uh, You've sort of made yourself known and you've done a great thing, which is express appreciation to somebody who's taken a lot of time and put in a lot of work into their own research. And uh, I've had a handful of people over the years email me based on one of my articles that I wrote. And I have to say, it always makes uh, a deep impression on me. I really appreciate that somebody takes the time to do that. And that's something that's very easy to do. And then finally, that fourth strategy is to express your clinical interests. So I've given lectures and presented cases or poster presentations at national conferences. And I've had medical students come up to me afterwards and just start to discuss my topic or that specific case with me. And I've been impressed by many of these students. I've really enjoyed these conversations. And some of them have actually emailed me afterwards. Some of them have sent me details, for example, about an additional case of a specific topic 
um, or they've sent me a review article that they specifically found helpful. So, for example, one student came up to me after my talk on diet and dermatology at the National American Academy of Dermatology meeting, and she told me about her own case of a particular rash that had developed after a patient started going on a ketogenic diet. And at that time, that was the first I'd heard of it. And she followed up with me later by emailing me that reference. And, um, and that started a conversation. And we actually later ended up working on a review article together. So those are some examples of ways that you can make these uh, contacts with faculty at other programs. So that is fantastic advice. I mean, that, that is just some very actionable items that I think a lot of our listeners can put into action. Uh, things that people may be wondering, you know, how to do, but you've laid it out so that they have a bit of a blueprint to follow. So thank you so much, Rajni. Oh, no, of course. But I do want to say that um, even I I have to say this because I know I, lot, I work with a lot of students. And of course, you know, it doesn't matter where you are in your career. It can be uncomfortable reaching out to people um, that you don't know and who are maybe, you know, the medical hierarchy. It can feel very uncomfortable. But sometimes it's just these small touch points that can develop into something further. And even if it's very uncomfortable for you to be speaking to a faculty member, it's important to recognize that these conversations can be helpful and they can be impactful on the faculty member. And of course, I need to emphasize, I want to emphasize that these should not be about you asking for something in return or asking for a favor. These are really just opportunities to speak to a faculty member, maybe have a conversation conversation and just leave it at that in most cases. Now, if the faculty member invites you to reach back out or gives you their contact information, then you can take that opportunity. In most cases, that won't happen and that's fine, but it's great practice. And I think it's really important to just practice making these small points of contact. Well, that is great advice. And I know that this is the first strategy you wanted to present. But uh, what I want to do is save those last two strategies for part two of our two-part episode here. And so we will definitely cover that as well. I know there are some additional strategies that are very exciting that uh, we want to get across to our listeners in part two. Uh, for our listeners, as a reminder... Uh, our podcast is not the only source of information that we provide. We have a plethora of information on our website, thesuccessfulmatch.com. So I encourage you to visit us there and access those informational resources. And we're always eager to hear from you. We know that you have many questions. And if you want to share those with us, you can contact us. And uh, that may be something that we can bring up in future episodes. And so I want to uh, thank uh, Dr. Kata again. This is Dr. Samir Desai with my partner, Dr. Kata, on the Success in Medicine podcast. Mm -hmm.